As we turn to God's Word today, we are in the book of Colossians. Today we'll be in Colossians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 22 of chapter 3 and we'll read through the first verse of chapter 4. While you're turning there, um, I did get a little bit sidetracked last week as I was wrapping up the sermon and um, couldn't get these last three things out. So I wanted to touch on them just a little bit before we begin looking at this week's sermon. You know, we were talking about fathers. We were talking about children obeying their parents and fathers loving their children. And I, I meant to, to address grandparents a little bit. You know, your children are older and gone and they have children of their own. And so you still have options and opportunity to speak the gospel into their lives, to pray for them, to minister to your grandchildren and to um, lift them up. I addressed, I addressed fathers quite a bit last week, and I, and I meant to, to talk to the single moms in the congregation as well. Um, the men of the church are to be the fathers to your children and to be the spiritual input into them. They're not going to replace their biological father, but as you seek to raise your children um, in a single-parent home, you have good Christian men who are here, specifically the elders of this church, who will help you with raising your children, and then to childless fathers, to childless men in the congregation. You have that opportunity to speak into the lives of the children in this congregation. I know I have benefited greatly from Christian men throughout my life who have poured into my life, who have proclaimed the gospel to me, who have walked beside me through difficulties, who have walked beside me in learning more and more about Jesus. And so even though I addressed fathers quite a bit last week, that doesn't let the rest of us off the hook who may not have children. We are called uh, in the church to be spiritual fathers to the children in the church. And so now let us move on and look toward uh, the admonitions to slaves and to masters. And we'll actually begin back in verse 5 of chapter 3, but our focus will be on verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then down to verse 22. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let us pray. To the God who has revealed his will to us in the creation and in his word, we cry out to you today to to guard us according to your word so that we might be pure before you. Drive your word deep into our hearts and keep us from sin. Help us to delight in what you will teach us today as much or more than we delight in the riches and pleasures of this world. Give us the desire and strength to meditate day and night on the laws you have given Help us to delight in all that you teach us through your word. We pray this in the name of the one of the word who was with God and who is God. Amen. Statistics tell us it takes as little as 90 days to get from this is the greatest job anyone in the world could ever have to man, I hate my job and I really don't want to go to work today. We have a love-hate relationship with work. We hate to go to work, but we love to eat and live under a roof with refrigeration and air conditioning and television. There also seems to be an antagonistic relationship between employees and employers as employers try to get as much as they can from their employees for as little pay, and employees try to give as little work as they can for as much pay as they can receive. Now, I know there are exceptions to the rules. I know that there should be a distinct group of, of people who are consistently described by their employers as the, by their employees as the best employee employers and by their employers as the best employees. And today we're going to consider how we can be those people, whether an employee or an employer. See, we are made holy when we are made holy, when we are transformed from slavery to sin to adopted as sons we are made holy and righteous through the work of Jesus uh, through the work of Jesus and the holy spirit and we are to work out the holiness that is ours through our work just as much as we are in our marriage and in our family so today as we unpack these words of paul we're going to consider a problem with this passage the problem of language we're going to consider the union with christ changes our work as employees we're going to consider how union with Christ changes our work as employers. First off, the problem with language. Did you know there's a problem with language? There's a lot of problems with languages. Some specific types of language you shouldn't use. Paul commands us against that. But there's a problem specifically with languages that in that oftentimes it is culturally conditioned. What do I mean by that? If you go across the Atlantic to England, they might ask you if you want a biscuit and you have a very specific idea in your mind as to what you are going to get when they offer you a biscuit. And you're going to be very disappointed when what shows up is not what you had in mind. For us, a biscuit is a combination of flour and butter and Crisco or lard, depending upon how good you want them to be. 
and, and then buttermilk and, and a leavening agent. And we put butter or honey or jelly or once again, depending upon how good you want them to be, sausage gravy on top of these things. They're light, they're fluffy, they're thick. If you go to England and you get a biscuit, you get a shortbread cookie. Something you dip or dunk in your tea as you're having afternoon tea. Our language is culturally conditioned oftentimes. But it's not just conditioned by geography. At times, it is also conditioned by the history of our culture. And that's what I want us to look at today and to consider. As we look, as we have read in the New International Version, the first word of the passage, beginning in verse 22, is the word slaves. And we have a very culturally conditioned idea as to what that word means. And it's conditioned by the history of the Atlantic slave trade where people were stolen from their families, from their tribes in Africa. They were placed on boats. If they were fortunate enough to survive the trip on the boat, they were then sold on an auction block, much like a cow or a goat or a sheep. Many of them lived in horrendous conditions. They were treated as something less than human because oftentimes they were considered to be something less than human. And so when we read this verse, Slaves, obey your earthly masters. As 21st century Americans, that happens to be what we think Paul is talking about. But it's not that way. And that's not who Paul is talking to. The English Standard Version in its translation of this passage uses the word bondservant, which may be closer to the idea or what we do know from our own history as an indentured servant. Someone who contracts themselves for a time to somebody until they can get set up on their feet. In the first century Palestine and first century Roman context in which this was written, slaves were typically not looked down upon as something less than human. They were typically entered into slavery by their own choice because of economic difficulties. If I lived in the first century and I just could not provide for my family, I could go to somebody who was wealthy in the town and I could say, I want to be your servant. I want to be your slave because I can't take care of myself economically. I need help with that. Now, occasionally there were people who were forced into slavery due to military conquest, but for the most part, it was a semi-voluntary action. Once I once I contracted or once I went into service to this person, to this rich person, he was then responsible for everything for me, my food, my shelter, my medical care, my education. If there were things within his home that I needed to do that I did not have the teaching in order to complete, he would provide education for me as well. Slaves typically retired at the age of 60 if they survive that long, and if they die before the age of 60, all of their burial expenses and arrangements would be covered by their master. As a slave, I could earn money. I could put it into a type of escrow account, and depending upon the deceitfulness or lack of deceitfulness of my master, that money would begin to grow. It would not gain interest. It would just sit there like storing money under your mattress until I could buy things that I needed, whether it was for my family or whether even at a certain point I amassed enough money to go before a magistrate with my master and purchase my freedom. 
If I had sold myself into slavery to a man who was a Roman citizen, I could then also buy or I could then also earn citizenship in the Roman Empire once I gained my freedom. For the most part, slavery during this time was not the horrific practice that that most of us think about when we read that word slave. We actually do something very similar today, do we not? If I am at home and I can't pay my bills, I go fill out applications to people who have money who will give me that money for the services that I can render to them. A modern day correlation would be getting a job, being an employee, or for the master to be an employer. Now, I do want to say something. I do want to make it very clear that even though the situation of slavery during Paul's time and what we typically think of in slavery was significantly different, there are still problems with slavery. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, specifically verses 20 through 28, we are told that there is a fundamental equality between all of human beings. Every single human being, from the youngest to the oldest, from the smarter to the least smart, every single human being has this equality that is tied into their very being. And it's that we are created in the image of God. And the idea that one image of God can economically own another image of God is something that is not supposed to be. Now, the Bible has rules that govern relationships between servants or slaves and masters. Why would the Bible have that? We're we're accused in the church of condoning this horrible institution. Well, the Bible gives us rules to humanize and to sanctify as much as possible a cultural institution that as Scripture progresses will go away. Now, Paul does not directly address slavery here and say, you know what, masters, you should not have slaves. Any any idea why? It's because that was not the mission of the church. The mission of the church was to free people from slavery to sin. It was not to start cultural revolution. Paul lays the groundwork for that. As Christianity grew within the Roman Empire, as Christianity grew throughout the, the, the world, some of these practices have gone away. The abolitionists of the 17th through 19th uh, Centuries, many of them stood upon the foundation of Genesis 1. We are all created in the image of God as they sought to abolish slavery. See, the church was in a very precarious position during Paul's time. The empire demanded that, that the citizens of the empire declare that Caesar is Lord. The church was already in trouble because they declared something else. Jesus is Lord. And for Paul to call them for a cultural revolution would have stopped the mission of the church, which was to bring more people to the realization that Jesus is Lord. Because no matter what our economic situation is, no matter how poor we are, no matter how rich we are, no matter how much we feel like we're a slave to life, that is not our problem. Our ultimate problem is that we are slaves to sin. 
outside of Jesus Christ, we have sold our souls, we have sold our allegiance to our sinful nature, to Satan saying, I am aligned with you. I will do whatever you want as long as you will give me the pleasures, the power, the things I want. I will sell myself to sin as a slave. And we need to be freed from that. And Paul said, yes, we are going to be built up on the foundation of Genesis 1. But first, we need to deal with the heart issue. First, we need to deal with the gospel. First, we need to deal with the fact that we stand before God as equally condemned. But with Christ, we stand before God as equally saved. And we saw that in our New Testament reading as we read through Philemon. Onesimus is your slave. Onesimus has harmed you in some way by running away and possibly stealing from you. But he's on his way back, and I don't want you to take him back as a slave. Take him back as a brother. Because what does he say in this letter to the Philippians? There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. And ultimately, that is our need, is salvation. So we've dealt with the problem of language. Now let's look at the commands that Paul gives us here. The first is that union with Christ changes our work as employee. Now this section, we, we've, we've split up this section with the relationship between wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. We've split this up into three, three sermons, but all of those sermons are under the realization that we are new creations in Christ We are holy and beloved before God because of the work of Jesus. And we are to work these things out in these three significant relationships in our lives. Our marriage, our family, and our work. Paul spends the most time on work in this particular passage, in this particular book. In Ephesians, he spends more time on marriage. But in this particular book, he looks to slaves and masters. And and he says some very specific things to slaves. He says, first off, Obey your earthly masters in everything. It's the same command given to children, where children were to obey their parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. He, he expands upon the pleasing the Lord, and, and he expands upon obeying the earthly masters by calling them to obey even when they're not watching. I know I, I fall into this trap as well. Whenever, whenever somebody's around watching me, I do much better work whether it was when I was a part-time employee at Wendy's or Kentucky Fried Chicken or Publix or whether I was a full-time employee at the trucking company or the pest control company or the cleaning company, whenever somebody was watching me, I did such better work. But aren't we all tempted to that? Aren't we all tempted to think that, hey, nobody's watching me. I'm just going to kind of skate for a little bit. I'm just going to kind of, oh, here comes the boss. Let's get busy. Let's work. But the rest of the time, I'm just going to let things slide and And hopefully I get enough done to keep my job so I can come back tomorrow. But Paul reminds these people of something. You work for them and obey them, not only when they're watching, but even when they're not watching. And why is that? It's because your boss is not your boss. He's just the man or the woman that God has placed an authority over you in that moment. And even when he's not watching you, your true boss, your true master is. 
And so your work is to be done as though you're working for God and not just for men. We we consider Psalm 51 where David says, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Well, the same applies for our work. Lord, for you and for you only do I work. It, our, our human boss is placed there by God's authority, but ultimately we as Christians work for God and we are to work um, with reverence for the Lord. This is literally the fear of the Lord. We're supposed to go about our work with a sense that this work is done in reverence for God. It is a holy work. You know, we're guilty in the church sometimes of creating a split between ministry and secular work. Did you know that where you are placed right now in your employment, whether you're full-time, part-time, stay-at-home, retired, wherever God has placed you in your work, that is your holy work before God. You are to do that with fear and with reverence for Him. That is your calling. That's where God has placed you. We are to work as though we are working for the Lord. We're not working for men. We're working for God. And our work is a service to God. Our work is a ministry to God. Our work is an opportunity to glorify God. And believe me, work is tough. It's tough to remember this sometimes. I've been waking up in the middle of the night by a pager going off because somebody's washing machine hose burst and there's three inches of water in their house. Their goods that are light enough are floating. The dirt that was in their carpet is floating. And I've had to stand there with an extractor sucking water out of people's houses. It's hard to remember in that moment that I'm working for God because I'm tired. This place smells. You ever, you ever think your house is clean? What till your carpet gets wet? You'll find out it's not. How can this be glorifying to God? But sucking dirty water out of dirty carpet at three o'clock in the morning was my service for the Lord at that time. How do you view your work? Most of us are tempted to view work as just something that we have to do to get by, to make some money. And when the boss is there, we're going to work really hard, but we're going to slack off when he's not. We have way too view, way too low a view of work. Work is hard because of the curse, but work is not part of the curse. Work is our God-given mission in this world, our God-given ministry in this world. We don't merely work for human bosses and human companies. Our work is to be marked by the holiness that God has worked in us. It's not merely for the purpose of earthly wages, but our eternal reward is tied to our work. And do you work for an unjust boss? Do you you work for the boss that always asks you for feels like ten times more than what he's paying you? That he's unjust to you, he treats you unfairly. Paul says, look, some of those masters are unjust masters. And just as you will get your reward in the future when Jesus returns, they will too. All of us will stand before God. All of us, all of our work will be judged. All of it will be found wanting before God. And yet by the grace of Christ, we will receive a reward for the work that we have done. Are you working for man or are you working for God? And then Paul deals with masters or employers. And he talks about how our union with Christ changes our work as employers. Some of us are fortunate enough in this room to not be an employee. We're the boss. 
And he, Paul deals with them as well. He says, Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and what is fair. The word right is actually the word just. Have you promised an honest day's wage? Give an honest day's wage. Have you promised to take care of your employee? Take care of your employee. And he goes on to say, not only what is just, but also what is equitable. Make sure you are treating your employees like the image of God that they are. And then he tells masters why. He says, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Basically, Paul throws the masters back into the slavery category. He said, hey, your slaves are supposed to work for God and not for men. But remember, you're a servant, you're a slave to God. So you're supposed to work for God and not for men. And your ultimate goal in treating your employees is to treat them in a way that glorifies God and magnifies the dignity that they have because they are images of God. No matter who you are in this world, no matter how important you you ever become, even if tomorrow you are declared to be the emperor of all the universe, you are still a slave, a servant to the master who is in heaven. You still have to answer to somebody. And Paul says, because of that, because you have to answer to a master in heaven, be a master on earth, be an employer on earth, be a boss on earth that glorifies God and treats your employees like the humanity that they are. So we've seen the problem with language. We have seen that union with Christ should change how we work as an employee. And we've seen how union with Christ should change how we work as an employer. One commentator on this section said, our relationship with Christ alters how we relate to everyone else. If you're an employee, are you striving to be the best employee for the glory of God that you can be? Now, this is tough, I know, because you have other employees that work with you as well that are going, would you just slow down? You're making the rest of us look bad. No, you can't. Are you the most valuable employee there? Or are you the, or, or are you the employee that your boss hopes, man, I just really hope I don't have to ask Ike to stay late tonight because he's just going to give me grief. We are called as employees to remember that we are working for God and not for men. But if you're an employer, are you treating your employees as equal in the sight of God? Are you treating them with the dignity that they deserve? Several years ago, Hobby Lobby showed up in the news for their view on on um, uh, contraceptives, on, on birth control. I was reading some statistics when when all that was going on, about the good things that you never hear about Hobby Lobby. Part-time employees are consistently paid 3 to $4 above minimum wage, starting off. Full-time employees are consistently paid double or more of minimum wage, starting off. Part-time employees are given vacation time. Part-time employees are given sick time. And this may have changed. It's been a couple of years since I've looked at this. But they listed all the benefits that Hobby Lobby gives to their employees because the owners are Christians and view their employees as not just human resources, but as humans. Isn't that crazy? 
we, we've gone from an employment office to a human resource office, and I think the latest one I've seen was a human capital office. You're more than capital. You're humans. Your employees are more than just another cog in the factory, in the machine. Treat them as employees. But remember the overarching theme of this section. Our marriage, our family, and our work comprise the vast, vast majority of the time we of time awake that we spend on this earth. We are holy. We are chosen. We are beloved. Let that work out in the mundane activities of your life. Yes, work is boring. Work is hard. But be holy in it. Yes, parenting is tough. Yes, parenting is difficult and frustrating. Be holy in it. And yes, God is changing you in your marriage. Be holy in that change as well. For you are holy. You are united to Christ. You are adopted as sons. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, each of us have been called to a work. Each of us have been called to a service for you. Help us to be God-honoring employees and employers. Help us to be God-honoring parents and children. Help us to be holy and God-honoring husbands and wives. And remind us that through the work of Christ, we are chosen, we are holy, we are beloved. In Jesus' name, amen.